Section 82 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kylie. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. Section 82, Science and Faith. In Grievous Error. In a truly scientific mind, science and faith cannot exist without coming into collision. For no one who knows and realizes the results of scientific research can remain a believer. The Truth When Zeno the Elatic denied the possibility of motion, an opponent answered him, not by an abstract argument, but by giving him a visible example of motion. He straightway began to walk about the room. In the present article, we are going to use an argument similar to the one leveled at Zeno's doctrine. We are going to point to concrete examples. It is asserted that science and faith can never get on well together in a well-balanced mind, or that it is impossible to reconcile faith and science. We are going to show that science and faith can be reconciled by proving that they have been reconciled in concrete instances and not in one or two solitary instances, but in the case of numerous men of science enjoying the highest reputation in the scientific world. We shall not seek our example among the smaller scientists, or even among those of medium reputation, but among the leading lights of scientific research. What is more, we shall confine our selection of names to the scientists of the 19th century. In the case of many men of science, the world at large has known little about their attitude towards faith or revelation. They have been known simply as scientists, and it is only their scientific achievements that have been trumpeted abroad. But a study of the matter has made it clear that during the 19th century, the really great men of science, with a few exceptions, were believers in many of the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. We owe it to a German Jesuit that we are able to produce abundant and convincing testimony on this point. Father Neller, in his work entitled Christianity and the Representatives of Modern Science, furnishes a list of eminent scientists of the 19th century, all of countries and numbering upwards of 200, all of whom were at least believers in a personal God, and the spirituality of the soul, whilst the vast majority were adherents of one or another of the Christian creeds. We are aware that such lists may well be regarded with suspicion when they are mere lists and nothing else. But Father Neller's work is not a catalogue of names, it is a review of the careers of the scientists mentioned. It is based on trustworthy authorities and abounds in quotations which furnish conclusive evidence of the real sentiments of the scientists in question. Although in Father Neller's books there is not a name that does not stand for some notable service rendered to science, we shall select here only the greater lights. The number in parentheses after each name indicates the date of the person's death. Mechanical Theory and Mathematics Count von Rumford, 1814 
J. R. Mayer, 1878. J. P. Julie, 1889. G. A. Hearn, 1890. W. Rankine, 1872. H. Von Helmholtz, 1894. Sir William Thompson, later Lord Kevin. 1907. K. F. Gauze, 1855. J. P. Pfaff, 1825. A. L. Kochi, 1857. V. A. Pusso, 1883. C. Hermite, 1901. P. S. Laplace, 1827. Astronomy, G. Piazzi, 1826. A. Secchi, 1878. F. Secchi, 1887. F. Di Vico, 1848. Sir John Herschel, 1871. U. J. Levrier, eighteen seventy-seven. L. Respeggi, eighteen eighty-nine. K. Creel, eighteen sixty-two. J. F. Enkel, eighteen sixty-five. Physics, electricity. A. Volta, eighteen twenty-seven. A. M. Empire, eighteen thirty-six. M. Faraday, eighteen sixty-seven. G. S. Ohm, eighteen fifty-four. J. C. Maxwell, eighteen seventy-nine. W. Weber, eighteen ninety-one. Light. A. Fresnel. 1827. J. Fraunhofer, 1826. A. Fiso, 1896. Sir George Stokes, 1903. Lord Rayleigh, still living. Miscellaneous. J. B. Bolt, 1878. Chemistry. Sir Humphrey Davy, 1829. L. Vauclin, 1829. L. Finard, 1857. J. B. Dumas, 1884. J. von Liebig, 1873. M. Chevrel, 1889. C. Scotenbeg. 1868. Mineralogy. R. Hayu. 1822. J. von Fuchs. 1856. E. Mallard. 1894. Geology. G. Cuvier. 1832. C. Deville. 
1876. L. de Beaumont, 1874. J. Barandi, 1883. G. Daubry, 1896. B. Diamalius, 1875. A. Dumont, 1857. J. D. Dana, 1895. Sir William Dawson, 1899. K. Bischoff, 1870. F. Kenstent, 1889. Oswald Heer, 1883. B. Studer, 1887. K. Lawson, 1893. W. Wagen, 1900. Physiology. J. Mueller, 1858. J. Schwann, 1882. D. Eschgreit, 1863. A. Volkman, 1877. C. Bernard, 1878. Sir Charles Bell, 1842. L. Pasteur, 1895. J. B. Carnoy, 1899. R. Linnae, 1826. Zoology and Botany. C. Ehrenberg, 1876. L. Agassiz, 1873. P. J. Beneden, 1894. A. David, 1900. K. von Martis, 1868. Asa Gray, 1888. Carl Beyer, 1876. G. J. Romanis, 1894. Evolution Theory. J. B. de Lamarck, 1829. E. St. Hilary, 1844. Sir Charles Yell, 1875 and others mentioned above. Any well-informed reader must see that the above list represents the great bulk of scientific achievement in the 19th century, and yet there is not a single name on that list that does not stand for at least the more fundamental beliefs of Christianity. Many of these scientists were devout Christians, a very large percentage were Catholics, and some of them were priests or monks. This, by the way, is a refutation of a certain public pronouncement that, quote, scientific eminence among Roman Catholics is rare, end quote. The statement must be based on a very narrow survey of the history of science. It will be noticed that the latter half of the century is as well represented as the former, and yet it is in the latter half that Christianity is supposed to have received its death blow. It was the latter half of the century that witnessed the scientific achievements 
of Lord Kelvin and Louis Pasteur. It was only a few years ago that Lord Kelvin made the famous public declaration that caused such a flutter in anti-Christian circles, to wit, that science positively affirmed the existence of a creator, and that science was not antagonistic to religion, but rather a help to it. It is only a few years since Pasteur, a devout Catholic, closed his illustratus career, and it was Pasteur that gave the memorable answer to a pupil of his who had asked him how it was possible for one who had studied and reflected so much to remain a believer in Christianity. Quote, It is precisely because I have studied and reflected that I have today the faith of a Breton, and had I studied and reflected more, I should have the faith of a Breton's wife. A few of the names on the above list will, it is true, excite the surprise of those who are acquainted with certain parts of their writings. And there is no denying that in the works of these few, there is some downright bad philosophy, but against this must be weighed the evidence that indubitably points to the habitual attitude of the author's mind towards the things unseen, either during the greater part of their lives or toward their close. Laplace is a case in point. There is nothing to prove that he ever lost his hold upon his Catholic beliefs. True, there is a story about him which has been thoughtlessly bandied about to the effect that during a conversation with Napoleon, to whom he had presented one of his works, he spoke of the existence of God as being no more than a hypothesis. Napoleon had remarked to him, quote, Newton in his work speaks of God. I have gone through yours, but I find no mention of God. End quote. Citizen First Consul Laplace is said to have answered, quote, I find no need of that hypothesis. End quote. Now, be it observed in the first place that Laplace would never have dared to play the part of a skeptic before Napoleon who, in the days of his power, gave short shrift to unbelievers. In the second place, when Laplace learned that the story was about to appear in printed sketch of his life, he directed a friend of his, Ergo the scientist, to interest him in having it omitted. We have this from Ergo himself, and yet Ergo was an unbeliever. In the third place, supposing the story to be true, a very natural explanation of Laplace's remark is found in the difference of opinion existing between him and Newton as to the necessity of special divine intervention for the ordering of the planetary system as regards to the number, the size, and the relative distances of the planets and satellites, and for the prevention of confusion resulting from their movements. The necessity of God's intervention was maintained by Newton, but denied by Laplace, who held that the ordering of the system might result from the action of general laws already established. Quote, May not this disposition of the planets, says Laplace, be itself an effect of the laws of motion, and may not the supreme intelligence, to whose intervention Newton had recourse, have made this orderly disposition depend on a phenomenon of a more general character? End quote. 
Here, there's no question of God's existence, but of his special intervention for a particular purpose. And here, there's probably a key to the anecdote. The Encyclopedia Britannica, in its article on the place, observes that in the astronomer's private correspondence, there are scattered remarks which are inconsistent with the atheistical opinions with which he is so often credited. It is certain that he asked for and received the last sacraments before dying, and that he expired in the arms of two priests, M. the cure des missions extrangeres and M. le cure des arignols. Carl von Baer's case is no less noteworthy in this connection. Though at first admitting the force of the argument from design for the existence of a personal god, he lapsed into Pathianism, but in his latter days, he returned to a belief in a personal god. There had always been a certain wavering in his pantheism, but the die was cast upon his reading a work of Fichte's on German speculation. Quote, I had long believed, he said, in the possibility of reaching through pantheism a unifying conception of the universe. Fitch's book taught me better. Pantheism won't do. End quote. Romains, too, drifted away from his early Christian faith, but a little book of his, which we have before us, as we write, Thoughts on Religion, was written for the purpose of tracing his progress in returning, as he finally did to his early beliefs. We are assured by his editor and friend, Bishop Gore, that he made full and open profession of Christianity before his death. The geologists and the evolutionists have given special scandal to the Orthodox, but many of them, as for instance, Lyell, the geologist, have not been shaken in their religious beliefs. Some have even striven to demonstrate the entire consistency of the evolution theory with the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. This, we are told by Joseph Leconte, has been the special role assumed by the American as distinguished from European scientists. Quote, my own work, he adds, has been chiefly in this direction, end quote. Alfred Russell Wallace, who was associated with Darwin in the first prepounding of the theory of natural selection, and whose eminence as a scientist is well known, steadily held to the spirituality of the human soul, and a creative intelligence in the universe. As to Darwin, the protagonist of modern evolution, he certainly lost his grasp of Christian truth. He would fain have believed, but when thought of religion visited his mind, he found himself unable to grapple with the subject. He did not positively and consistently reject Christianity either, on a scientific or other grounds. But even had he done so, it is doubtful whether any importance should have been attached to his reasonings on the subject. Quote, what he says in his autobiography about Christianity, remarks Romains, who knew him thoroughly, shows no profundity of thought in the direction of philosophy or religion. His mind was too purely inductive for this. End quote. It is clear, then, that Darwin's thoughts about religion are useless material to the anti-Christian controversialist. The reader will learn much more to the purpose by turning to the article Darwin. Objection. Whatever may be said about many of the great leaders in science, it is notorious that today the majority of men of science have little or no religious belief. 
the fact seems significant, or at least demands an explanation. Answer. There is no denying that unbelief has made sad inroads among men of science, but in what profession has it not? There are scores of reasons why men in all walks of life are losing their religious faith, reasons that have no connection with their several professions. There are infidel lawyers and infidel merchants, and yet neither their law nor their merchandise has anything to do with their infidelity. The general independence of the age and the neglect of solid religious instruction are alone sufficient to account most defections from the faith. We may add to these causes of infidelity the exclusive absorption in study, which is a characteristic of the scientific specialist. And once the fashion of skepticism has set in, fashion itself becomes a powerful motive for the profession of unbelief. True science is not a cause of unbelief, but it may easily be used as an excuse after faith has been thrown away. Physical science has so commanding a position in our day that its representatives are regarded by the unthinking and ill-informed as authorities on every conceivable subject, not excluding theology. And yet, most of the skeptical scientists of the day never give religion more than a passing thought and have written on the subject little or nothing that is worth reading. In contrast with this, apathy or willful neglect on the part of the unbelieving, we find that many of the unbelieving scientists whose names are on our list, notably Ampere, Kochi, Volta, and Maxwell, have given years of study both to religion and to the religious bearings of scientific truths and yet have been unable to find any mutual repugnance between the demonstrations of physical science and the real teachings of Christian revelation. Volta, whose name has passed into the very vocabulary of science, once penned the following declaration, quote, I have always believed and still believe the holy Catholic faith to be the one true and infallible religion, and I constantly give thanks to God who has infused into me this belief, in which I desire to live and die, with the firm hope of eternal life. In this faith, I recognize a pure gift of God, a supernatural grace, but I have not neglected those human means which confirm belief and overthrow such doubts as may arise to tempt me. I have given attentive study to the foundations of my faith. I have read in the works both of defenders and a silence of the faith arguments for and against it, and have derived thence arguments in its favor which render it most acceptable even to the purely natural reason and prove it to be such that any mind unperverted by sin and passion, any healthy and generous mind, cannot but accept and love it. End quote. Neller, page 116, F. Maxwell's more colloquial form of confession made to a friend is no less weighty. Quote, I have read up many queer religions. There is nothing like the old thing after all. I've looked into most philosophical systems, and I have seen that none will work without a god. End quote. Neller, page 136. Moreover, there is a pronounness to exaggerate the loss of faith occurring among men of science. It is chiefly as scientists that they are known to the world at large, and men who live in mixed society are reticent on the subject of religion. The change that took place in Bear and Romain's 
may have its counterpart in the case of many others. Certainly, Birchow, Du Bois, Raymond, and Wundt experienced in the course of their careers a change of views that brought them nearer the truth. The exaggerated impression as to the number of scientific unbelievers is due in great measure to the statements and the living example of the popular platform scientists, who are generally not the leaders of scientific thought. Finally, even though the actual number of scientists without faith were doubled or trebled, the thesis we are defending would not be weakened in the least. Our aim has been to show that if it is maintained, as it frequently is, the faith must conflict with science. The position is demolished by an appeal to the experience of many eminent scientists. As a matter of fact, science and faith have dwelt in peace in many of the leading scientific minds of a century. We have sought out the great minds of the scientific world and found that in very many instances, intellectual greatness has gone hand in hand with religious faith and fervor. There can be no question here of counting up so many votes on the one side and so many on the other and then deciding by the majority. The vote of a single great mind must outweigh those of a score of inferior minds. And we have seen that many great minds in the world of science have held and proclaimed allegiance to Christian truth. End of chapter 82. Recording by Kylie.